Today, we have another excellent guest who I'm sure many of you will know. Uh, he has appeared on The Young Jerks multiple times over the years. Uh, he actually won uh, an award at last year's Young Jerks fifth uh, anniversary gala. And he also last appeared on the show, correct me if I'm wrong, with Dr. Marion McNabb about 11 months ago uh, when we were live uh, from Dig Boston. I'm, yes. I'm, I'm here today with a uh, U.S. Uh, veteran and uh, can local cannabis activist and all-around warrior, Stephen Mandilli. So nice to have you with us here today, Stephen. Hey, thanks for having me on, Grant, and uh, thanks for doing this and being able to uh, keep the keep the public informed on everything that's going on and having a connection to the people. I'm, uh, I'm thankful for all you and Mike and everyone at uh, Young Jerks do and have been doing, so thanks. Thanks for having me. Oh, that really means a lot uh, coming from you, Stephen. Um, you, at your tenure, I think, uh, being involved with the Young Jerks um, ha goes on probably even longer than my involvement. So <laughs> I'm glad to hear that you think things have been going in the right direction. Um, tell us, though, uh, for viewers who maybe have found us in the past six months, um, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, not only your journey uh, into the world of cannabis activism, um, but also uh, the way in which your prior uh, service uh, in the military kind of overlaps with the work that you're uh, now doing. Sure. So, um, you know, as a lot of people already know, and it, it gets <laughs> tiring of uh, talking about my story, um, I was injured in Iraq and uh, led to a subsequent um, uh, addiction of, of opioids and many other uh, medications. I had tried uh, 57 different medications uh, through the VA, including fentanyl, um, seven or eight other opioids, uh, Xanax, Klonopin, a bunch of benzodiazepines, uh, sleeping pills, antidepressants. Um, none of those uh, really helped me out and kind of brought me into a dark place where I hadn't, I hadn't attempted suicide via overdose. Um, and through the uh, basically an ultimatum from my wife. I changed over. Um, she had me look into cannabis and at first I had, um, you know, scoffed at the idea of sitting around and, and smoking, you know, weed, uh, as I thought, and then really looked into what I was taking and saw that I was just sitting around at home and, and taking heroin anyways. So, um, kind of got through that stigma of, of what that looked like or sounded like, um, and really put a lot of, a lot of things at risk making that switch. At the time, uh, this was 2015, before the VA had any um, initiatives to uh, protect the benefits of veterans that were using cannabis. Uh, since I believe 2018 or 19 now, they have initiatives that allows for um, veterans and to be using cannabis on their own, you know, with no help from the VA. You can't get any assistance through them, but no longer um, putting your benefits at risk for all of that. <clears throat> um, you know, and, and started there with how do I, how do I spread the word of, of this as something that can help people? Um, I think maybe a year or two into that, um, I was approached by the uh, Yes on 4 campaign um, and asked me what my thoughts on recreational cannabis. And I thought, you know, whatever you want to label it, it's still cannabis and it can help people no matter what it's called, whether it's called recreational or called um, medical or adult use. It has the same effects no matter which label is on it. Um, so started working with that campaign as a spokesperson to get legalization here in Massachusetts, um, you know, which sadly has now been is, is threatened uh, by the governor. And it's, it's great to see so many different organizations now uh, getting together and people and former advocates, uh, you know, still fighting the fight. Um, 
to make sure recreational adult use is still available uh, or to get it back to be available now and really, um, you know, bringing this to the governor's attention. And at the same time, you know, I'm very appreciative and understanding of, of the job that the governor is trying to do and focusing on the coronavirus and public safety and public health and, and think that's great. Um, I just don't want to see um, the many people that have, you know, that's their only access to medical cannabis, to cannabis at all is through the, the recreational adult use market um, due to stigma, due to cost. Due to, there's so many other reasons. Um, you know, but we passed this year back in 2016 to tax and regulate like alcohol, um, but that's not happening. You know, bars, uh, I shouldn't say bars, but liquor stores, package stores are still open. People can still get their alcohol. And I think the same should be, uh, the same should be provided for retail cannabis. Yes, absolutely agree. And so to, to bring folks uh, up to speed here, what uh, Stephen is talking about is that uh, on March 23rd, uh, as part of the ongoing uh, state of emergency in the state of Massachusetts related to the coronavirus pandemic, Governor Baker uh, instituted a policy whereby only essential businesses could remain open uh, for the next uh, however many weeks or months, whatever it may end up being. I think there is a, an initial deadline of when they're considering lifting that, uh, but it could go on for quite a while. Uh, so uh, what Stephen is talking about here is that as part of that essential business designation, the governor made the determination that medical cannabis stores, uh, which have been legal in Massachusetts since 2012, can continue to operate. However, recreational cannabis stores, which have been legal since 2016, 2017 or so, cannot continue to operate. And this actually has a knock-on impact, not just on the retail cannabis stores, but on the entire retail supply chain. Uh, for those who watch The Young Jerks a lot, you will know one of the primary issues that we focus on is hurdles in the licensing process for both social uh, equity economic, and economic empowerment applicants, as well as small local companies, uh, micro-businesses, co-ops and others. So all of those people who have been in the application queue for recreational cannabis right now, whether they're waiting for provisionally approved status, whether they've been given an application complete notice from the Cannabis Control Commission, all of those people have no uh, real sense of how things are going to play out going forward. So it's really kind of put a stop on the entire supply chain, which is, as you uh, were talking about, having a disproportionate impact on these companies that have worked for years just to yeah. get to the point where they might be able to open. And right. so uh, it, maybe you could tell us a little bit about, I, I know you have a lot of experience with cannabis policy. Um, how does, uh, how in your opinion could the, go, the governor potentially go about reopening the recreational supply chain in a way that addresses his concern, which seemed to be that he was worried about out-of-state individuals coming in. Right. Um, you know, I think that the simplest um, work uh, thing we can do for that is to to let it be known that they're only accepting, you know, patient uh, customers with a, a Massachusetts ID, you know, that, that people without an out-of-state license will be turned away. Um, it, it stinks to do that because, you know, too, there's a lot of people from Massachusetts, uh, from Maine, from New Hampshire, from Rhode Island that work here in Massachusetts. They have to travel here for work anyways. 
but now they can't even stop at at a dispensary where they where they have been doing that for two years. Um, you know, it, it's really sad to have to do that, but it, in a way to protect the residents and the voters of Massachusetts, um, checking IDs would be the simplest way to do that. Yep, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. And uh, something else interesting that you mentioned was that, and I think this is a very important point, for various reasons, not every person who's using cannabis medicinally, which is a vital day-to-day -day medication, as the governor already has indicated, yep. is able to obtain a medical cannabis card. And, uh, you know, for, for our listeners, those uh, individuals may, be, for example, be someone who has a firearm ID card, an FID card, uh, that may be someone who cannot afford the, two, it can be between $150 to $250 per year to uh, pay a doctor to give you a medical cannabis recommendation. Yeah. Uh, so some patients can't afford it. And one specific group who you know a lot about, uh, veterans, sometimes are not uh, able to easily obtain a cannabis card. So um, before I ask you about the bill that you've, proposed, you've helped work on uh, to remedy the veterans issue in particular, can you mm -hmm. explain why it is veterans have that difficulty obtaining a medical cannabis card? Um, you know, there's there's still a ton of stigma surrounding cannabis. For those of us in the industry and in the community, you know, not so much, um, you know, in, that we're in the know, but there's still a tremendous amount of uh, of stigma, and that keeps a lot of um, a lot of veterans from from do, from mentioning it. I mean, there's a lot of veterans that still, uh, due to stigma, don't even acknowledge or or talk about that they have PTSD because of the repercussions of that in in the workplace, things like that. There's also, um, you know, a lot of a lot of veterans get out of service and become first responders um, or teachers in, in those industries that are still doing uh, testing for cannabis. You know, it's, it's okay if you have to go home at night and, and you know, take a Xanax and, and drink a six pack. There's no stigma on that, you know, but the, the stigma on cannabis is still very real. And then the fact of um, veterans specifically that go to the VA, they have a relationship with, with a primary care doctor that they've been seeing for a long time, um, you know, and that they have a, a level of trust with, and then be forced to have to go outside of your VA and your healthcare team to an unknown, you know, uh, clinic, which I'm, I'm still grateful they're there for those that, that need it. But that, that's, you know, that's something, um, uh, that's, that's a tough barrier too, to get open about your personal issues with a, with a complete stranger that, you know, you know nothing about, you go see once a year. Um, and like you said, the, the cost of it is very high too. I mean, there's there's one office here that's charging three hundred fifty dollars for for a visit, you know. Um, so I, I think you know you have the stigma barrier, you have cost barrier, you have the privacy barrier, like you were saying with having a firearms. You know, you don't have to. When I have both, you know, and when I got my license to carry, I did that before I had my cannabis card. So it was okay that I was on fentanyl. It was okay that I was on all that other stuff. I still had access to my my. Uh, Second Amendment right due to HIPAA laws. Um, we don't have those same protections. So you're giving up a lot of privacy um, to register. That's a really important point. Um, can you explain a little bit about why someone who might, for example, be prescribed fentanyl can have a, a firearm card, but not someone who's prescribed cannabis? You mentioned HIPAA. Uh, could yeah. you tell the viewers a little bit about what HIPAA is and why it doesn't apply in the context of cannabis? 
Sure. So HIPAA is, um, you know, it's, it's your protections, your federal protections of your, your medical uh, history and everything you have going on with you medically. Uh, people can't just look into your records and see what you're taking. You know, that's, that's protected information by law. Uh, the same doesn't go for, for cannabis where it's still federally, uh, you know, schedule one substance, um, you know, it's still considered a uh, street drug or whatever they want to call it. Um, so you don't have those, you don't have those protections. And, you know, I believe we're told, you know, that people can't really access, um, you know, the, the state's records or anything like that, but it, it's a tough sell to a lot of people without any sort of guaranteed protections that, that your information is secure. And for someone uh, who gets the fentanyl prescribed, that yeah. information, it's not just subject to a promise that they'll keep it uh, from anyone. It is subject to a very strict uh, uh, oversight, uh, wherein anyone who violates that could get in trouble. However, that yeah. promise for cannabis may not have that same enforcement mechanism. Right. And I'm not sure. I'm, I'm pretty sure with, with like um, your medication prescriptions and stuff like that, I'm pretty sure they can't even ask you. You know, like that, you're not they're not even allowed to cross that line. So to have it on the on the, the application for your firearms, you know, if you take any illegal substances, I mean, it, not technically in Massachusetts, but still because of the federal government, even though we have the 10th Amendment, which protects state rights, uh, the, the federal, you know, the license to carry is a, is a federal license. Yes. And the interplay uh, especially in the context of the supremacy clause post-Civil War between state law and federal law for cannabis users in particular has been an area wherein, surprisingly, uh, what we call constitutional originalists or uh, others might call conservatives actually end up favoring more federal government control <laughs> right. I, ironically. And so it's, right. it's it's a very interesting ideological paradigm because it is probably the one area where even those who would love to see states' rights respected still try to argue that the federal government should have supremacy. Right. Yeah. And, They're the first ones to say, you know, we don't want big government. But then when it comes to, you know, having your rights as well, the, the government doesn't see that as being legal, you know, and that's crazy. Um. I mean, here in Massachusetts, this is an issue that it crosses partisan lines. I've had Democrats, independents, Green Party, all these different um, people, veterans and, and, and non-veterans alike uh, from those different different sides come to me and tell me like, you know, I, I thank you for what, you know, for what you do for cannabis. You know, I'm, I'm not able to register, but I still like to use it. And, you know, this has been something that's helped me so much. Um, so this crosses partisan lines. It crosses every line. It's something that brings, you know, all of us really together. It, it doesn't matter, um, you know, where you see yourself as Republican or Democrat. So I've had, I've had state legislators from both sides as well, you know, tell me experiences about how they've heard from their constituents. And, you know, in the beginning, uh, they were against legalization. But since hearing from so many people that have stopped smoking cigarettes, stopped drinking alcohol, because they have you know, cannabis available, it, it, it's totally, they've changed their mind and taken a 180 on it, so. Yes, and that's exactly what I was going to go to next, which is that, thankfully, even though there is this tension between the federal government and the state governments, even on the federal level, 
we're starting to see a move away from the Ronald Reagan era, uh, just say no, uh, war on drugs mentality that led to such a vicious uh, system of criminal justice that, as you're well aware, had such a disproportionate impact on so, so many minority groups and, and, and socioeconomic groups. Um, and part of the reason why I think that that dialogue in the federal level has been moving is thanks to folks like Cory Gardner, uh, in uh, this Republican senator from Colorado, uh, who's yeah. up for election actually in the fall, that, that could be a very close race, um, and Rep. Ed Perlmutter uh, in the uh, House of Representatives. And one of the signs within the past few months that we're actually making a lot of positive progress on the cannabis front in the federal arena was the passage through the House of the Safe Banking Act. Yep. And so um, for uh, those who don't know, could you tell us a little bit about what the Safe Banking Act would allow operations, uh, uh, cannabis operations in states like Massachusetts to do and what, what the status of that is at the, at the moment? I'm not super familiar with with that, um, but I do know that allows for, you know, one of the big barriers for businesses is, is access to banking um, and knowing that potentially at any moment, the government could seize all assets from from any cannabis business for, you know, technically operating illegally. Um, and that that act protects that those funds and those uh, operators from having their their money seized. I know uh, back in the in the past, you would hear stories of um, dispensaries in California getting raided and ATMs machines being taken as like evidence and that money being confiscated and stuff like that. So that now, you know, those businesses are now protected. And like you were saying, at the federal level too, when I um, first started, you know, using it for, for my reasons back in 2015, I kept being told, oh, this will never change. There's no way. There's no way the federal government will ever do anything different on that. I mean, just this past three weeks ago now, I was down in DC um, doing a Storm the Hill event uh, for a week with Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America. And this was my second time down there. And we were pushing for, um, for legislation that would allow the VA to do their own research um, and have it, you know, their excuse was it's illegal, we can't research it. Uh, while we were down there, a week later, the House Committee on Veterans Affairs passed one of those bills that would now allow uh, the VA to, to study and research cannabis. Now it's off to the uh, Senate uh, Veterans Committee. So, I mean, we hear these things are impossible, but until you actually put some of the work in, uh, you, you, you don't know. So that was one of my things, you know, is um, anytime anything came up is like, can you, can you do this? Can you help? My immediate answer was yes. Let me, let me try to help. Let me, um, you know, tell my story and try to help everyone else out. And I, I, can attest to that, uh, having watched you work on something like that actually on the state level. And I'm actually glad you brought that point up because it gives me a chance to ask you about that. So um, going back a little bit uh, to what we were talking about earlier, uh, which is uh, the barriers to entry for veterans to obtain medical cards, especially in Massachusetts. Um, you actually worked with some uh, lawmakers on Beacon Hill at the State House in Massachusetts uh, on a bill, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, it's H4274. Correct. And H4274 uh, is something that uh, you actually uh, shepherded through mm -hmm. the legislative process. So first, could you tell us what is Bill H4274? And then from there, we'll talk a little bit about the process you used to actually get lawmakers to bring it up. Yes. All right. So um, 
So Bill H four H four two seven four. I know it's it's a mouthful with these bill numbers. Um, it does three things, um, but mainly it's to it's to break stigma for people and create greater access. So two of the items on the bill are to um, to have opioid use disorder and PTSD listed as qualifying conditions. Um, you know, they can be written in, but I think there's a lot to be said about the breaking of stigma by saying those things out loud, you know, and, and letting people know, like, if it's not listed, they might look and be like, oh, that, there's no way that'll be allowed if it's not, you know, if it's not stated here. So I think that is uh, breaking a barrier to entry. And the, the third thing is to create a pathway for veterans to become patients if they want to, uh, that removes a lot of the redundant and costly barriers. So it would allow veterans to submit their VA paperwork um, directly to the Cannabis Control Commission to become registered patients and not have to take the step of going to see an unfamiliar doctor and, and be paying out of pocket. Um, like we said, that could be upwards from 200 to $350 depending on where you go. Um, that, that's a huge barrier. And there's other, and this also, I wanted to find something that wasn't reinventing the wheel. So I did a lot of research into um, what other states were doing and found that North Dakota and Illinois already have this. It's already in practice. They already, you know, they have it set up so veterans submit that paperwork. I mean, and if you want to go uh, a step further up in Canada, uh, veterans are, are um, compensated for three grams a day through the VA. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, roughly an eighth a day, they can get uh, reimbursed for that at, in, if you're a veteran in the Canadian VA system. Wow. So it's, uh, is it a direct, uh, you, you purchase as a veteran in Canada, you sign up yep. for, uh, for a program or just anything you as a veteran purchase, you can submit a reimbursement request for. I believe they have to go to a medical, uh, dispensary or have, or, you know, they have it in the VA system that they, that they are using cannabis. Um, and then, yeah, they just, I believe it's just submitting receipts and they get reimbursed, you know, I mean, and think of that here. I mean, an eighth a day, that, that's, you know, thousands a month, you know, like over 10,000 a year probably. And, and that's something that I would love to see here because that's one of the biggest barriers and initial barrier for me was sitting down with my wife and saying like, Hey, you know, like we have to really tighten some, you know, the budget in the house because where all I had to do was make a phone call or go online and order my medications with no copay. Now we're going away from that and everything's going to be out of pocket. So you really have to shuffle some things around to, to be able to stay, um, to be able to stay a patient and, and keep it. But I, I did want to point out and I'll let you ask it after is like, this wasn't anything I did alone. This was something like I, I thought out over a year ago, um, came up with a plan and, and had to put that in action. Yes. Uh, thank you for bringing me back there. Um, I think it's such a, important bill in substance uh, because I absolutely think that there is a lot of work done in the medical arena, uh, the medical cannabis arena in Massachusetts to provide access uh, to groups who have perhaps uh, disproportionately been unable to pay for medical cannabis or obtain their cards. And so I think that any program whether it's limited to people with HIV and AIDS, limited to people with cancer, limited to veterans, any program that helps targeted groups who have suffered disproportionately, whether through the medical system on behalf of our country to protect our freedoms or otherwise, have the ability to obtain their medical cannabis in a way that works for them. 
I personally think nothing would be worse than pr proposing a one-size-fits-all solution where for some reason every patient in the state has to see a cannabis doctor that's undergone a specific training. I think that opens the door to a monopolization of the very process of licensing, uh, of obtaining a medical cannabis card. I think that just like um, uh, primary care doctors who also provide other services in their primary care location, there's absolutely nothing that should stop a VA doctor or a primary care physician from telling their patients that they can take their medical records, go to the Cannabis Control Commission, and obtain that certification as a patient. And that actually brought me to what I wanted to ask about before we talked a little bit about the process you went through for passing the bill. There were actually, uh, and uh, uh, we won't mention specifics, but there was some opposition uh, to your bill uh, at mm -hmm. a state house hearing. And part of that opposition actually was what I was just arguing against, which was that this program shouldn't be just available to veterans. And right. I'd like to give you a chance to address that. Uh, how, how do you feel about that uh, objection? And what would you say in response? Yeah, so, you know, it this bill in in focusing on veterans you know we are one group that has you know we, we suffer from prohibition because of the scheduling and, and the va the prohibition keeps us from access to it um so this you know in my eyes this you know it's a small step but it's not the last step you know it's kind of like you call on veterans to do so much you know to kick in doors and, and do all this let us do that here um you know with, with stuff like this and, and show how it can be used properly um, so the bill is, is been put into study right now. It hasn't passed yet. Um, you know, still working on that, still working with the, um, the joint committee on cannabis policy. Therefore, um, there had been some concerns brought to their attention. Um, you know, and I don't mind naming names. They've been named in, in the newspapers and everything. Um, the Massachusetts patient advocacy Alliance spoke out against it. Um, their, their thought was that, you know, it's a, it's a special, veterans are a special interest group and that shouldn't be allowed. Um, and, and others can, should have the same access. And I agreed with them. And my um, rebuttal to them was, so work on a bill that does that. You know, why sink another ship when you haven't even built the ship yet? You know, like that was, that was very troubling to me. And then to read, um, to read a, a testimony in a newspaper given by Dr. Jordan Tischler, Whose, um, whose practice is the one that charges $350 a year, um, but gives a veteran a 5% discount um, in that $350 price tag, was saying that it's insane, called it insane that a person, a veteran, would get access to cannabis um, without seeing a doctor. And he cited that there, there are many harms, including uh, cannabis overuse. The veteran community is put, you know, find a better community that's well versed, that is as, as well versed in risk mitigation and harm reduction than veterans. I mean, we're talking, he said it's, you know, the, the harms of cannabis overuse. What about the harms of bullets? What about the harms of IEDs and things like that? You know, where was, where, where are those people, you know, trying to protect veterans in that way? They're not, you know, so to, to have people, um, oppose it without a solution is what bothers me most you know fine you 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 don't like it you think it needs improvement but where is your attempt at doing stuff you know to, to make what you're talking about possible i even offered my assistance to them if they wanted to work on a bill that would address this for everyone and said hey i'd be happy to help with that 
but don't be, you know, trying to sink my boat because it's already up and sailing. Absolutely. And I, I don't know, Dr. Tischler, um, I don't, uh, I'm not asking about any specific doctors, but let me put it to you this way. <laughs> if your bill passed, would profits go down for people who make uh, money uh, giving those prescriptions or those recommendations out right now? Yes, it would be taking customers away from from those uh, those clinics that do just referrals. You know, and my argument is, yes, th they serve a purpose, but for for patients that have doctors, you know, I can't also go back to a referral clinic and be like, hey, I've got the flu. You know, is you know, can you help me? Can you give me some guidance? It's strictly for just this one substance where a primary care physician if they can be writing prescriptions for every other medication that has deadly side effects, then why, why such, um, you know, why do they need so much more training on cannabis? You know, it, it makes sense to me. And it, it also makes sense from the perspective of the number of people right now who, because of the current system can, are being denied their medical cards. When we're weighing, what where is the harm you know that these doctors potentially losing some of their revenue versus yep. patients losing access to this medication that might be able to take them off opioids or any number of uh, other reasons i think we have to clearly say well any time even a single patient can't afford the fee we failed systemically right yep and and so i i am wholeheartedly behind you on that perhaps i compromise my integrity as a cannabis <laughs> reporter but i ideologically i'm i'm behind you 100 percent um just a quick second for uh show identification and we'll jump right back into the discussion about the lawmaking process that you went through to get that bill uh, in front of the uh, committee in the Massachusetts State House. Uh, you're all uh, watching The Young Jerks. This is Grant Smith. Uh, sometimes you go by Grant Smith Ellis. And tonight we are broadcasting live uh, with Stephen Mandilli, who's a former uh, U.S. military, uh, who's a U.S. military veteran a former member of the U.S. military, although I guess in that world you're there for life, a uh, member of the fraternity. Um, so we're here at Stephen Mandilli. Uh, we're talking about local cannabis policy, national cannabis policy, the impact of cannabis policy on veterans, and we are enjoying this switch to the virtual Young Jerks. Uh, before I forget, uh, as you all know, uh, we've lost our uh, space uh, to our uh, recording studio. We've switched to virtual hosting. We're trying to add a phone line so folks can call in directly. Currently, we don't really have the best mechanism to allow your call-ins to come in. And so uh, we're uh, trying to find ways to uh, get some more support. If you want, if you like the work that we're doing, if you want to support the articles that we're writing, uh, a lot of that money is coming out of the pocket of uh, the founder of the Young Jerks right now, Mike Crawford. So if you want to help us keep putting out content, uh, please visit midnightmass.substack.com. You can uh, either be a free subscriber, get all the content, see it before the articles get published in Dig Boston and elsewhere, or if you're feeling generous, you can subscribe five bucks a month through uh, midnightmass.substack.com that'll help us be able to pay more journalists uh, who might have lost their jobs recently and might be looking for opportunities to freelance uh, so please uh, if you can do so uh, consider signing up 
Uh, as I said, Grant Smith here with Stephen Mandilli, and we were just talking about a bill that Stephen has been working on in the Massachusetts uh, State House to allow veterans to obtain medical cannabis without paying upwards of $350 a year to see a medical cannabis doctor in a clinic. And before that little station, or I should say channel identification break, I was asking Stephen what he had done to actually bring this bill to fruition. Because a lot of people in the activist community, they talk about, oh, I want to make some, my idea into a law. I, I want to take this proposal I have, I want to get it written down and made into law. Can you tell us, back when you had this initial idea about allowing veterans easier access to medical cannabis, uh, what you initially uh, planned as your approach to get the law written and how it played out, who your allies were and how the process sort of unfolded. Absolutely. Um, so I had been spending, you know, roughly two years uh, meeting with legislators and organizations and telling them about, you know, the successes that, that veterans can have. Um, uh, with with medical cannabis, having a lot of those veterans uh, speak and tell their own stories as well. Um, and one of the things I realized was that we needed more than just anecdotal evidence. You know, data rules the world. You have to have data um, to, to back up any story. Um, so I had been to an event. I was asked to speak at an event. I think it was probably uh, June 2018 with uh, Dr. Marion McNabb and the Cannabis Community Care and Research Network. Um, and I've always, you know, followed them and, and, and really uh, liked the work that they did. So back in uh, probably December 2018, I approached Dr. McNabb and, and asking about hiring her organization and working with them to do a to do a health study, a survey on the veteran community and their cannabis use. Um, and and knew that you know having that data would be would be eye-opening to to the legislators where they need to see in bigger numbers what we're talking about um along with that i wanted people to be able to get that information um rolling out consistently throughout the year while we were doing it so i'd also reached out to um ann broom at joint venture and co to help with uh doing um you know getting that information out there and we had uh put together an event series of um six events across the Commonwealth this past year. So uh, altogether, we raised over $100,000 to be able to fund the study, uh, fund the event series, and, and get all that, all that information out there. And, you know, some of the, I don't have any of it in front of me right now, but they can go, you can go to cannabisadvancementseries.org um, and look at the, the study results. We have it broken down um, by Massachusetts veterans and also veterans nationwide. And one of the biggest things that, that pops out from that research is that, you know, at the end of the day, we're talking about quality of life for people and being able to, to live a better quality of life. And we're talking 80, 90% of, um, of survey respondents saying that they have a better or much better quality of life having made the switch to cannabis. And that's both, you know, and those numbers matched up both Massachusetts and, and nationwide. I believe we had at least 46 states represented in the survey. So almost all of the country. Um, and the top two barriers we found out were uh, cost of product and also cost of becoming a patient. So immediately I just thought, you know, what, what, how can we do, what can we do to remedy this? Um, I had already put in a, a program uh, 
two years ago now, uh, that gives uh, veterans with 100% disability rating a 40% discount at uh, medical dispensaries. I believe there's, there's over a dozen now that have adopted the program. Um, and that was my goal initially was to, to come up with something and, and not, you know, ways for them to verify statuses and, and check that on their own without having, you know, to come to me every time and just being able to, you know, train the trainers on how to do it. So like I said, there's over a dozen now that make that available and that saves, you know, that saves veterans thousands a year. That's almost, you know, half the price off. Um, but I also wanted to, to help the veterans that wanted to become patients get, get that access. You know, there's, um, a lot, I'm grateful that a lot of these organizations will do events for, you know, they'll do a full day event where veterans get to do it for free, but that is still a barrier to a lot of veterans that don't want to be in a big group of people, you know, whether it's, whether it's with veterans or not, that, you know, large groups of people can, can trigger, um, can trigger their PTSD or trigger their, their, their problems. And anytime for something medical, it seems kind of odd to just have a bunch of people get together you know, and do it that way. It's still like for people to have the choice of, you know, make an appointment on their time. And then again, you know, like if they can't get away on a Saturday afternoon with everything that's going on and then, then they miss out. So, um, you know, I want to have a way that was, that was very accessible to people and, and be able to do it on their time. So I had asked the legislators to, you know, put that, you know, uh, I approached, I approached my state representative because that's what everybody should do. Like you have representation, like you voted for those people where you live. So reach out to them as resources. I had drafted, um, you who, know, is your, the, who is your state rep that you reached out to? Yeah. So my state representative is Mike Soder. Mm -hmm. Um, he's out here in the Worcester County. Uh, I believe he has, Uxbridge, Blackstone, Bellingham, and uh, not Menden, I'm missing one. I can't remember all of them. But um, yeah, he was someone also that was against um, legalization when, when I first started doing this in, in 2016, who had then, you know, turned around and, and saw the benefits it was having, not only for patients, but the municipalities that that are benefiting from the 3% sales tax and also from, I mean, uh, the, the three percent yes for the recreational the three percent sales tax and also the host community agreements um you know that was really helping out communities so i reached out to him and said hey you know there's there, we can help more people if more people can have access so i made a rough draft of what i would like to see um submitted that to him he agreed to be the sponsor of that um, um steven just to yep. catch you because some people who haven't been through the process of, of how a law is written might not realize when you submitted a draft of the law, did you submit a draft of your ideas or did you look at prior bills and try to structure the legislative language in a way that wouldn't require a lot of work on behalf of the rep who was helping you? Yes, thanks for asking that. I, I, did, a, I did a lot of research into uh, what other states did um, and other organizations were, had, had you know, put together in writing and tried to uh, copy it, but also adapt, you know, to Massachusetts. Um, but really presenting it enough and with data, you know, submitted it to him and then it was brought to, um, to House Council. And House Council put that into the correct, you know, language that's needed for a bill. Um, so, you know, the, people think, oh, you know, I, I can't get a bill passed or can't get it presented. There's been bills to get rid of uh, 
what is it? Uh, our time save our time zone thing, the daylight savings time. There's been bills to ban words. Like you don't think you can't do it. Like there's um there's thing there's outrageous things that get presented and they actually get a bill number, a docket number. So don't ever think that you can't do it. Um, and that's a really good question, actually, because I remember that's really good uh, insight, actually, because I remember all the no news stories about one of the lawmakers who uh, filed a bill, I think it was on behalf of a constituent to ban, uh, uh, I think it was the B word, uh, C word, the, the C word, which is a pretty <laughs> vile word, not something yeah. I use in, in conversation or at all, really. Um, by the same token, there's obviously some blowback there, and the lawmaker had to put out a statement actually explaining the unique process in Massachusetts that exists for what's called constituent petitions. And right. so they, that's what you're talking about a little bit here, which is your, you can, any lawmaker can submit a bill if they like your idea. But right. your representative or your senator, if you submit a law, is there an obligation for them to file it, or is it uh, a practice for them to file it? I believe it's a practice, but you know uh, what other people need to realize too is these your your legislators, they only have that job because they get voted in, and they answer to their constituents. They don't work for the government; they work for for us. They work for the voters. So if you have an idea and you present it to them and it just gets shot down, go ahead and share that with your with the community. You know, like go ahead and let that be publicly known that this was turned away. Um, by your legislator, and then they'll have they'll have to deal with that come election time. And and a lot of them, you know, that's something that's always on their mind is how is this going to look to the constituents? Yep, uh, that's absolutely true. And I, I think that actually goes a little bit to what you were talking about with your strategy for approaching your lawmaker, which mm -hmm. is you approached it in the context of why is this good public policy? Right. And right. for those who are in the activist arena and not in the activist arena, Lawmakers are human beings, and mm -hmm. they're as much political animals as they are moral animals. And right. I've always felt, and maybe this is my journalistic philo philosophic naivete, <laughs> that <laughs> if you have a moral maxim that is worthwhile, that that is enough to build support among people who are willing to take the time to understand the issue. Right. And part of what I think Stephen's story reflects is that we are not living in a world where folks who are trying to pass cannabis policy are ignored. These lawmakers in Massachusetts and the House and the Senate care a lot about public policy, about structuring cannabis policy in a way that prevents the kind of regulatory monopoly that it almost seems like your bill was trying to address, if not intentionally, because like you were saying, these services do a lot of good work for veterans. They provide free uh, certifications from time to time at big events. Now that poses its own problems, like you were saying, but the point is that it's not like you set out to destroy businesses that were giving recommendations. Right. You only wanted it to be so that there was not a basically mandated monopoly. Yep, and the way I said it was, we're not, ruined, we're not changing or taking anything apart. We're creating more pathways. You know, it's not it's not getting rid of anything. It's making another pathway. And the you know what's what I uh, an important lesson I learned in the military that everyone will tell you is you don't ever approach your command with a problem unless you have like two or three solutions <laughs> ready to go. So I went to them and pointed out, you know, we have an opioid overdose epidemic where 
um, you know, 20, uh, I mean, uh, 2000 people in Mass residents of Massachusetts are dying by opioid overdose a year. And you also have, and that's put out by the Department of Public Health here in Massachusetts. And they also stated that veterans are three times more likely to die of an opioid overdose. And then you put on that too, that 20 veterans a day are committing suicide. And a lot of them are on these medications with harmful side effects, such as suicidal thoughts. So you're only making a problem uh, worse for some. And again, I don't want to stigmatize uh, any treatment plan for anybody. That those those medications work for many, but not for all. So I'm all for you know giving everybody the 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 option they need to help them best. Because like you said, this isn't a blanket thing where you can say, oh, this is for everybody. It needs to be for the individual. You know, enough trying to jam a square peg into a round hole. You know, if it works for that person, then then great. Absolutely, and I think that's part of the impressive nature of what it is that you're proposing because it takes into account the nuance of individual circumstance in a way that sometimes laws are unable to do mm -hmm. uh, and so to see you having navigated not only the lawmaking process but also the political arena in which it takes place is impressive now said the bills being studied um, uh, this is h4274 I know we've been talking about this for a while but it's such an important bill um, just to check in this is Grant Smith again with the young jerks I'm here with Stephen Mandilli we're talking about his advocacy on behalf of veterans and cannabis patients in particular we're talking about House Bill H4274 which is right now uh, it had a hearing a couple months ago and it's now being uh, studied uh, further so can you tell us a little bit about going forward what you're hoping to have happen with the bill and where do you think or how do you think that will play out yeah so I mean like everyone knows with with the coronavirus going on you know I've been a little I've, I've pulled back a little on pressing you know in trying to get the legislators um, to, to take action on it now um, I'm fortunate to be working with uh, Representative Rogers and Senator uh, Sonia Cheng Diaz as, as the co-chairs of the committee. And, and they have a lot of interest um, in, in learning more and in getting this. They understand the, uh, the, the problems that we're trying to help uh, create solutions to. Um, and they've been very open and, and made themselves available. And like I said, just with everyone, you know, and I also realized that they have so many things going on and they have a staff that, that handles a lot of this stuff. And without its staff right now, a lot of a lot of things are on hold at, at the State House on Beacon Hill. Um, but still trying to to get more support, um, you know, and asking them whatever questions you have, I, I'm here to answer for you. Whatever information you need, I will help gather it for you. Um, and and just just trying to be a, an asset to them and, and helping them understand. Because that's another thing. Um, it's it's tough to to learn is a lot of people don't understand the VA you know a lot of people just think it's health insurance it's not health insurance it's it's a program that that you have to enroll in it's a benefit that people have earned through their sacrifice in serving the country um, so it's it's more than just health insurance uh, I do you know I do want to see other federal programs I do want to see people on Medicaid be able to get the same access and at the state level I'd like to see People on mass health just be able to use their mass health to get to get their uh, referrals and all and anything like that. So, um, yeah. 
Yep, yep, absolutely. Um, it, you brought me back to another important point. I, I'm, I'm glad you did, actually, because part of what we started this conversation talking about was that slowdown of lawmaking related uh, to the coronavirus. But as you know, uh, the coronavirus, as we were talking about, has resulted in the shutdown of the entire recreational cannabis industry uh, in the Commonwealth. So um, in the context of what's being done now to uh, discuss work with the governor and such to bring that recreational industry uh, back into operation during the uh, essential businesses only period, you uh, have been uh, involved. Uh, you've been watching how that those uh, discussions have been playing out. There was an amendment uh, to the uh, H4580, which was the bill to get uh, in the Massachusetts State House to get local aid and, and things of that nature to, to communities in need hit by the virus. And an amendment to that bill from Representative China Taylor uh, would have uh, re-implemented uh, the ability of the recreational or adult use cannabis market to operate. Um, that amendment, the bill passed uh, two nights ago, I think it was, and the amendment was withdrawn. Um, yes. However, the work is not done. Uh, there was a joint statement put out by 12 lawmakers, Senator Chang Diaz being one of them, along with Rep. El Argado and uh, Rep. Tyler. Uh, there was also another joint letter that was covered in the Globe and the Herald uh, that called on the governor to reopen these adult use facilities. Can you tell us a little bit about the work you've been doing, others have been doing to come together and ask the governor to reconsider this decision? Sure. So um, so this all came about like it, it happened so fast. Like I, I, I came back from D.C. and I myself had a fever and started feeling sick. So, you know, I had reached out to the VA and I got put into uh, quarantine and, you know, um, with a lot of my issues, I, I got kind of down into a funk, um, you know, a little depression. But um, then that happened where the governor took that stance and said, you know, non-essential, close it down. And um, almost immediately, I started having people reaching out to me saying, like, what are you? What can we do? Like, I, I rely on that. I rely on the retail store. You know, I rely on adult use. Um, I'm a Sluckman in Uxbridge, and we have Caroline's Cannabis here. And you know, Caroline's is there for when I can't make it to a medical dispensary, you know, that might be, that's, that's at least 30, 40 minute drive away. I can drive five minutes down the road and, and in a pinch have, have my medicine available. Uh, you know, might pay a little higher price, but the convenience of it, you know, is, is necessary for me to be able to fill in the gaps. Um, so I started looking into it and, and reached out to a friend of mine and saying like, Hey, you know, I'm thinking about, making some sort of statement um we really want to do a podcast and and really uh you know talk to people about about this issue and then you know as soon as i put that out into, into uh words out in the universe i started getting calls from from lobbyists from other dispensaries and i was just like you know what? i really don't want to um you know be f my, my fight is for the people it's not so much for the businesses although it is too being um an elected official in a municipality that really benefits from that revenue from from the dispensary um but i really wanted this to be about the people that don't have access i.e veterans and you know now more importantly than ever first responders that relied on that as an as an access point uh without having to register so then finally um 
you know, the band got back together per se with uh, the Yes on Four campaign, reached back out and like, hey, you know, we still got work to do. You know, like it's get we're getting attacked. So um, in that group is you know uh, Jim Borgasani, uh, Will Luzier, uh, other spokespeople like Dr. Peter Grinspoon, uh, Shaleen Title. Uh, we all decided to uh, to get together and 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 ask that this be fixed. You know, like. And you don't have to look too, you're not reinventing the wheel again. You don't have to look too far. Other states have realized that, yeah, we do need this, you know, and they've changed their position on it. So it's something doable. And I believe, you know, this group of people that we have together that, that passed this bill and, you know, and, and fought for it, um, we can, we can do it again. And I believe that's going to happen. I don't think, I mean, I don't know if it's going to go all the way until April 7th before things change, but I do believe they will be back open sooner than later. Well, I'm really glad to hear that, and I'm in particular glad to hear that you're working with such excellent folks like Mr. Borgasani, Mr. Luzier, uh, Commissioner Title, um, and so many, uh, Dr. Grinspoon, and, and so many other wonderful folks. Uh, it's, it's absolutely uh, important, the work that you're all doing, and like you were saying, getting the band back together in some ways uh, when it comes to folks like that is actually a positive because it brings those big minds, those, those, those big thinkers together in a way that allows you all to approach these kind of public policy issues uh, from a strategic perspective. And this is absolutely a trying time. I, I think that there is no doubt about that, uh, that this even those who may have criticized the governor's decision, I think, understand where he was coming from, understand right. what he was trying to achieve with his order. And I think that's really the key here, which is to demonstrate clearly to, to the governor and other officials that the attempt is to work in good faith to right. develop a policy that works for everyone. So rather than just throwing things at the wall metaphorically and, and hoping that, you know, some angry statement, uh, you know, affects the right person, you guys right. have really been willing to work from a policy perspective to help them move in a direction that takes into consideration all of the concerns. Right. This, this is by no means an attack. It's a plea, you know, it's, it's an ask. And just like um, with Representative Tyler's amendment, I mean, she didn't want, you know, we didn't want that amendment to be what was going to hold up resources going to these municipalities facing the, you know, the coronavirus. So that wasn't pulled because of any sort of, um, you know, loss or anything like that. It was because we didn't want to hold back any sort of progress in that fight. You know, we're part of it. We, we want to see, you know, to see um, changes happen and to be, have those people taken care of. You know, we were talking a lot about patients here and, and, and um, people, customers going to, to the dispensaries, but let's not forget about all these workers in the industry that are getting laid off and furloughed and don't have access to the federal uh, assistance through like SBA, the Small Business Association and stuff like, like other businesses do. Like these people are now going without a paycheck and what, a $1,200 uh, check from, from the federal government? That doesn't even cover most people's monthly rent, you know? so. There's, there's so many layers to how this is affecting um, residents of the Commonwealth. Yeah, and you know how they got to that 1,200 number? No, how? Uh, it's the minimum wage at 40 hours a week. Oh. And who's and who's on minimum wage that has one well, job? You federal, know? federal minimum wage, which is something like 7.85 an hour. Oh my goodness. 
that's yeah that that doesn't i mean that might work in the you know the outskirt hills of west virginia <laughs> but not in like highly dense metropolitan areas like boston and, and all the surrounding towns and it might have also worked if there was some further federal uh mechanisms to say you know uh delay rent or uh things of that nature but i i don't think that this federal government in particular is going to be rushing to uh help those people on that level unfortunately no, no i don't either but i do think there's going to be another round of stimulus coming out i mean if we're talking through april like now how are those gonna, how are those people going to pay april rent you know like this was to cover march so Oh, it, it could lead to a cascade of defaults. And um, as folks might know from the uh, derivatives, or uh, it was called the credit default swaps crisis leading up to 2008, it's mm -hmm. actually because of junk debt, uh, aka debt that's in default, that economies collapse. Because a majority of our financial system is actually based on trading collateralized debt right and so when that collateralized debt which is based on people's ability to live month to month and pay it back starts defaulting you end up in a very dangerous situation that sometimes no amount of economic stimulus can fix but the kind of thing that can fix it and this is a word that i don't think too many in our audience are going to know is something like the tva which was the Tennessee Valley Association uh, under Roosevelt in 1934. And this was a New Deal program, much like what they're proposing for this next stimulus, mm -hmm. which is two trillion, and this is only in beginning talks and will not happen until April 20th at the earliest, as that is when the Senate and the House on the federal level return from recess. But that, uh, their next proposal is potentially to make a $2 trillion infrastructure bill centered around the government employing folks to build infrastructure. Right. I mean, that that's what makes the most sense. It shouldn't be, the infrastructure shouldn't be for profit. It's for the people, you know, like we need that. Give the, give that, give that job, those jobs to the people. I mean, look at, um, you know, today we see uh, Whole Foods uh, possibly going on strike. Jeff Bezos, is the richest billionaire in the world not just in the country but in the world he's he's the number one guy and his answer to helping his workers was a, a two dollar raise you know like there's so much more that can be done and and we need to see more uh more compassion by by these big businesses i mean yes they lose but they're, they're always bailed out like like you said in 2008 they were bailed out they'll be bailed out again but the people are the ones that are going to suffer yeah, you're absolutely right. And part of that whole process is that, unfortunately, the reality is that those big companies have easier access to lawmakers and people who disperse funds than yep. most individual citizens. And I think that speaks to why it's so important, the, the work that you're doing and, and, and other activists are doing, because that helps to break up that monopoly. 
And what's really uh, interesting, uh, just a local factoid, uh, this, is the, this is the Young Jerks, by the way. We just hit the hour mark, so we're closing in on the end of the show. But uh, I'm Grant Smith here with Stephen Mandilli. We've just had an excellent interview talking about all things cannabis on the local and federal level, things related to veterans advocacy. Uh, but what's really interesting, uh, Stephen, is did you know that before the 1800s, infrastructure actually used to be private? No. And uh, so uh, this is actually really cool for local folks in the Boston area. Um, the Harvard Bridge mm -hmm. used to be a private toll bridge <laughs> until a case called the Charles River Bridge case in 1890 or so, maybe a little earlier, maybe a little later. And in that case, it was when the Supreme Court first decided that vital infrastructure, in that case, just uh, uh, bridges over waterways, were public goods. Wow. So it's not even that new. I mean, 200 years isn't a long time. <laughs> oh, if that, 150 maybe. Yeah, yeah, that's not a long time. That's insane. Privately owned bridges, huh? Yeah, truly wild. <laughs> but like I said, we're coming to the end. Uh, maybe, you know, I'll talk for a few more minutes. Uh, one thing uh, that I wanted to give you an opportunity to do on the record uh, before we get out of here, uh, there's criticism uh, directed uh, your way over the past week or so. Um, you know, we, we at the Young Jerks were impartial on the issue, so uh, we wanted to give you an opportunity to respond to some of those uh, criticisms and uh, to uh, address anything you want before we get out of here. Sure, so yeah, I'll take uh, the time to to address it, um, you know, it's 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 private. Well, it's it's private information. It's it's you know my business, my failures, my 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 problems. But um, yeah, it's being brought up, and it's kind of all over the place. Where there's a bunch of things getting thrown in all together that that aren't really connected whatsoever. Um, yeah, I was the founder of a nonprofit uh, that was created to help. Um, address you know some of the problems with overdose deaths and disease of addiction um and i was elected by by that board the by that board as the president and treasurer uh this was back in 2016 um and like i said i have a bad habit of saying uh yes to everything no matter what thinking i can i can help just by by being part of it but you know i got in my over my head uh real fast and had no idea how to do a lot of the stuff i was being asked like uh bookkeeping, record keeping, uh, you know, stuff like that. Um, and, you know, I, I made a lot of mistakes. Um, everything, all funding was accounted for and, and was there. None, nothing was lost. Um, but be, because of my uh, inability and, and mistakes, I was uh, removed from the organization, you know, and that was a, a failure of mine that I own. Um, and I, I feel bad for letting those people down that I was working with. Um, but, you know, I, I struggled for months in af uh, after that and wanting to just, you know, give up any sort of advocacy and any sort of uh, any sort of work trying to help people out because I was I was just beside myself of how to how to continue. Um, but instead, with the help of uh, a strong support system in my family, I decided to just focus on, you know, things I could do and decide, you know, anything I'll do now, I'm, I'm going to just come out of pocket for if I have to. And you know, through that really came, you know, a lot of the, the good I've been able to do with the, um, the, the discount program for veterans. Um, you know, I still have still and never stopped having people reach out to me wanting more help wanting, you know, services and stuff like that. So 
I've told people in the past and I've helped um, raise money for other organizations instead of trying to, you know, reinvent the wheel and have helped get, um, you know, monies donated to organizations like Massachusetts Fallen Heroes um, that takes care and supports Gold Star families. Also for uh, disabled American veterans, I volunteer there um, and have helped them um, get a lot of donations, some from the, from the actual cannabis industry that are making, um, helping the DAV and helping veterans part of their positive impact plan, which is, which is amazing. Um, and also volunteering my time with, uh, like I said, with Iraq and Afghanistan veterans of America, um, spending, you know, weeks at a time um, down in DC trying to help, you know, veterans nationally. And that's really been my focus. And, you know, people can call it a special interest group all they want, um, but I do, and maybe they're right, veterans to me are pretty special, you know, without them, we don't have, you know, these, uh, every, all of our freedoms that we have and that, you know, and people are, are fighting for. And I look back um, too, and like, you know, like we're saying, you know, this could be a worse situation. You know, we, you could be looking at a draft, like our parents and grandparents went through and being sent to war. And right now, you know, all we're being asked to do is stay home, you know, and for a lot of people that's, they, you know, they're bummed out and thinking that, you know, their rights are being taken away. And that's, that's not the case here, you know, and this stuff with COVID-19, it's all for people's safety. It's nothing, it's not to take anything away. All these other conspiracies about, you know, they're doing, this is going to change everything and, and they're trying to take our freedoms away. I'm not buying into that. But as far as, um, as far as my, my failures have gone, like, yeah, I've got, I've got failures. I've had plenty of them. And like, I've always said, you know, there's been no, uh, there's been no professional baseball player that's bad in a thousand. You know, there's no pitcher that's struck everybody out. There's no basketball player that hits every shot. You know, like we all have failures, and you. The important thing is to uh, to learn from it, uh, to not give up, and and to keep going and for in fighting for what you believe in. Absolutely, and I think that speaks to what's so important, which is intent and uh, goodwill. And that someone who's willing to take a criticism to explain themselves and to do so in a way that reflects the commitment that they've had and made not just to this nation, but to their local community, to the cannabis community, it shines through in the work that you do. And your honesty is reflected in the fact that you were willing to make that statement. And I'm grateful that you were willing to take the time to address it. Uh, and not just that, address it in a way which makes clear that the work that you are trying to do is principled. Mm -hmm. And so many in the activist arena are doing just the opposite, working on behalf of big cannabis, working to further their personal interests. But it takes a serious commitment to the public good to selflessly become a public official, to selflessly work on behalf of policies that you might not directly benefit from, and I've seen that borne out by your work time and time again. It's why you won an award from us uh, here at the Young Jerks last year. And it's why we're honored to have you as a friend of the show and a guest on the show whenever you'd like to be on. That means a lot, Grant. I really, I really appreciate that. And you know, um, I didn't, I, this path that I'm on isn't one that I intended on. It was never one that I really, I wanted, you know. Um, I always wanted to serve the public, even, um, you know, my career goal was to be a firefighter. Uh, when I was injured in Iraq, that goal was taken away from me. And I had no idea how to go about 
you know, being of service any longer. Um, politicians, I thought, I'm not, I'm not smart enough to do that. You know, I put those, I put those people up on a, on a pedestal thing and that they were, you know, somehow better than everybody else and, and knew better than us, but then started learning about um, that process. And that's the one thing too, is to never stop learning, never count yourself out. Like as long as you have the goal to, to accomplish something, you can, you know, and, and that's something that I, I can't preach about enough is like set, set your goal and go after it and don't let it stop you. Like full disclosure, I'm also an applicant too. I want to open up my own retail dispensary. And what I would love to do is raise funds for these organizations or, um, you know, uh, I'll get into one specifically. Um, there's this organization in North Carolina called the Veterans Healing Farm. Um, and they do such amazing work with a, a, this farm that operates down there. Uh, they have, they have uh, like getaways and retreats for veterans. But the other thing too is they grow produce and they go to their local VA and they give it away to veterans and they give away tons of food to veterans. And that's something, you know, I'd love, I'd love to be able to, um, to raise funds to get something like that started here. Like it's just about, you know, giving back and, and that's all I want to do. So thank you. Well, it's really so important um, because as much as the grassroots community likes to sometimes criticize the actions of big business, which is important to do, mm -hmm. at the same time, it's important to uh, reward and to support those business leaders who are willing to approach things from a ethical community-based perspective. Because industry is just defined by overlapping concentric circles of social influence, right? If yep. you've ever wondered why uh, at Harvard, they have what are called finals clubs, like <laughs> DKE, Porcellian, uh, Hasty Pudding. What those finals clubs are, are basically just a way to teach influence, influential Harvard students how to operate in a world where soft power is defined by how you navigate those overlapping concentric social circles. Right. And and so in the sense, in the context of cannabis advocacy, those circles are gonna be manipulated by big cannabis if we don't have business leaders like yourself who are willing to do the right thing and set the tone. Mm -hmm. So pulling industry, it, making this sort of paradigm shift occur in the cannabis industry can only happen by folks like yourself being elevated to become those business leaders. And I'd like to see you as the chairman of the Commonwealth Dispensary Association. I'll tell you that <laughs> one day. <laughs> Thanks, Grant. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. Well, well, Stephen Mandilli, uh, all the viewers, it's been an absolutely excellent uh, little bit more than an hour on our third Virtual Young Jerks episode. Uh, we can't thank you all enough for sticking with us. Uh, Grant Smith here, Mike Crawford is uh, uh, the founder and other host of The Young Jerks. Uh, we will be back uh, with another episode in just, uh, I believe, a few days. Mike will uh, follow up with more information. We're going to have John Nathan, who's a local activist and works with uh, CBD Hemp Company, I believe is the formal name. Uh, Mike will put out a post uh, announcing the date and time for that interview. Uh, John Nathan is a really excellent member of the community who goes above and beyond to help out wherever he can. So it's going to be excellent to have him on. 
Uh, today was an excellent interview. We owe a huge debt of gratitude to Stephen Mandilli for his service on behalf of our republic, for his service on behalf of the cannabis community, and for his service on behalf of veterans as a very special interest group. <laughs> exactly. So, so this has been The Young Jerks. We are going to end the program for this evening. Uh, this episode will appear as a podcast. Remember, you can find us on Stitcher, uh, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Anchor, and anywhere else where you listen to your podcasts. I hope you all enjoy the rest of your evening, and we will be back with you in just a few days for another episode of The Virtual Young Jerks. All right, signing off. Bye now. Hi, it's Mike Crawford of The Young Jerks. I want to thank you for listening, subscribing to The Young Jerks podcast, and also recommend that if you would like to support us with a financial contribution, that you do so through the Anchor app or through midnightmass.substack.com, become a paying subscriber. Or if you'd like to just send us a donation, you could do so through Venmo. It's Mike Crawford, TYJ on Venmo. Thank you very much. And uh, also, if you could rate and review us on iTunes, it is much appreciated. Thank you.